Ladies and gentlemen, actually, I'm not allowed to say that. I have to say people. People gathered here this afternoon, a warm, warm welcome. We're so happy that you're here and that together we can share insights and perspectives on the many challenges our world is facing and what might be solutions for the many challenges we are facing in the Netherlands and on a worldwide level today. I do not have to explain more. I was talking with a few people present here um, while walking in and from different sites I heard, I do not want to read the newspaper anymore because every day there is another tragedy going on. How can we ever change that? And that is exactly what we are going to talk about today. My name is Kathleen Ferrier. I am the chair of the Dutch UNESCO Commission, and I'm honored and happy that I was invited to be your moderator this afternoon. I'll do my very best to bring forward the fantastic persons, the fantastic people we have this afternoon who will share their ideas and insights. I hope to give them the platform Women throughout history of mankind have proven to be the persons who are able to lead us in this different perspective. And we are extremely happy that today, when we focus on this question, we have three wise women amongst us. And we will pick their brains and to hear from them what, based on the unique views and experiences of each one of them, what they can tell us regarding the system that seems so unchangeable and how they contribute, in spite of this system, to make other views and other perspectives possible. May I ask you to welcome, in the first place, Bea ten Tuscher. Bea, may I invite you to the table? Can we, is this all the light we get on the table? Okay, okay, this is all the light we get. Okay, Bea ten Tuscher is the Dutch Commissioner for Freedom of Religion and conviction of the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Bea has built up much experience with the Dutch diplomatic world after she studied Swedish language and culture at Groningen University. She worked in several positions at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Since 1986, Bea served as the ambassador to Guatemala, to Bangladesh, to Norway and most recently in Bulgaria. And from 2009 till 2012, she was the head of the Department of Human Rights, Gender Good Governance and Humanitarian Aid. Bea, thank you for being here and for allowing us to pick your brains. Thank you very much. Then, honor. yeah, it's an honor for us to have you with us. Then we have Nilufer Rahim. Nilufer. May I ask you to, and give her a big hand. 
Nilover fled with her family from Afghanistan to the Netherlands. She studied medicine at Leiden University and graduated in 2015. She is working as a general practitioner. Nilufar is board member of the Kihan Foundation, a Dutch-Afghan foundation which is one of the most active diaspora organizations we know in this country. And through her work provides, amongst others, trainings to medical students from Afghani in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, Nilufar is one of the ambassadors of the Connecting Diaspora for Development initiative set up by the IOM here in the Netherlands, in which of which Cordaid is a partner. A big hand for Nilufar. And then we are so happy that with us this afternoon is also Eveline de Bruyne. <applause> Eveline studied cultural anthropology at Leiden University and got a master's in medical anthropology and development sociology. She is the current director of the Hunger Project Netherlands. And before this, she was the editor-in-chief of, of the Capacity.org and Vice Versa, the Dutch magazine for professionals in the development sector. For SNV, she worked as microfinance advisor in Vietnam. And, open your ears, Eveline's motto is, everybody knows we couldn't do it until somebody came who did not know that. <laughs> Eveline. In this first uh, round of discussion, I would like to focus on our own society. And I'm afraid that even the people with whom I spoke just while entering here, who said, I do not read any newspaper anymore, I do not listen to the news, that also they are aware of what kind of society we here in the Netherlands are becoming. We are becoming a fragmented society in which people live in their own reality, their own bubble, in WhatsApp groups, with people who confirm them in their own beliefs and basically in their sense of superiority. We live in a country where we see that politics is not able to solve the problems. And it even seems lately that we have a political system, or should I say politicians, who seem not to be able to act. And because of that fragmentation, because of that incapacity of political leadership that can bind us together around a vision, what we see is polarization. People who exclude others and also many people who feel that they are not part of the debate. They are never invited to be part at the table. And what we see is that our social norms, and surely when we look at what is happening, what is said on social media, that our social norms are fragmenting too. 
This is the reality of the Netherlands. Um, I've lived abroad and when I came back a few years ago from Hong Kong, I was really shocked. I thought, what's happening here in such a short time? So focusing a little, little bit on our Dutch society, I would like to hear from you. How do you regard what's happening in our country when pol with polarization and social norms? How would you define this reality? And what are your perspectives to bring the change actually all of us are longing for? Yeah, Bea, please go ahead. Since I'm closest to you, Kathleen, uh, thank you so much for having me here. I feel very humble as a wise woman. I never thought I would be one, but uh, lo and behold. Um, no, what you just said, Kathleen, uh, is, is a bleak picture, and we're all very tempted to think that way. Uh, and I was also tempted when I came back after living abroad for, for more than 10 years, of course, being back, coming back here regularly to the Netherlands because my work at embassies also brought me back home. But you live in other societies where people are dealing with the everyday challenges in a different way. And that also showed to me that we in Netherlands are a very pri privileged uh, country, a very privileged group of people, because I was uh, ambassador to Bulgaria and there I saw how people were, were dealing with their everyday lives, which had far less to offer. The welfare state there is not yet so developed. Of course, as a member of the European Union, they are entitled to get subsidies and support and they are striving to become a fully-fledged member. And they are getting a long way. The glass is always half full. That's always my, my idea. It's never half empty. It's always half full, but it should get fuller because then you have more to drink. So there I saw that we in the Netherlands reacted very um, uh, negatively uh, on, on the challenges that COVID posed to us. That escalated a lot of negative thinking that we already felt. People felt excluded, like you say. But I also started to realize that this is an emancipation process. Many groups who have been excluded from society for a long time, people of color, people with handicaps, uh, distances to the labor market, all these nice euphemisms we put, they suddenly realize, uh, or slowly realize, that they have rights and entitlements too. And they started claiming that because social media, internet connections, connectivity made that all so much easier. And I think it's only logical in this, as I call it, emancipation process, that they claim their rights. And we should help them in doing that because with that we become a richer society. And logically, it takes time. Uh, a crisis is always an opportunity. We all know that. It's even a Chinese character, I think, which says that crisis yeah. is a crisis, but also an opportunity. But to really live that feeling that you need opportunities, and maybe women, because we have been taught, for better or for worse, to build bridges, to educate children, uh, or to be responsible, for the social interactions of people. Maybe 
we find it easier to see that. I'm not always sure, but I hope so. That's maybe why we are here, the three of us. So I would like to take a positive angle that live through this. And sometimes I'm from the eastern part of the country where people are very down to earth, from Twente. And my mother always said, yeah, it has sometimes to get worse before it gets better. And that is what I'm now thinking. Yeah. Sometimes it has to get worse to, for the right people to stand up, for the new leaders to stand up. And for that, and that's my last word, I specifically look at young people. I'm yeah. very hopeful because I recognize a lot of their ideals and their dreams from when I was young. Uh, I'm 62 now, so that's a long time ago. But I see that they want to dream and they may be better uh, able than we were yeah. to realize their dreams. So there is my hope. Yeah. I hope I have answered Thank your you, question. Sir. You absolutely have. So you say we should be aware that we are privileged people. Of course, COVID has made very clear also inequalities between people nationally and internationally, but also, like you are saying, it has empowered people who say, I have my rights too. And it has to get worse to get better, and we need the young people. So I'm very interested, <laughs> Niloufar, to hear from you how you look at this. Are we not losing our privileges in the Netherlands? Shouldn't we care? Shouldn't we be m more aware of the privileged people that we are, the privileges that we have? Well, I cannot ag not agree with that. Absolutely. We should definitely be aware of our privileged status. Thank you all. Thank you for inviting me here. I would definitely not call myself wise, but I'm glad to be here, very humbled. Um, I think, of course, I mean, being a refugee or having been a refugee, um, I realize even more what a privilege it is to be here, to be able to live here, to study here, to work here. Um, and have the luxury life that so many people do not. But I think um, it's not just COVID. I mean, even before COVID, there is a lot of polarization. Uh, there has been lots of polarization uh, towards many minorities, um, especially uh, refugees, um, which I have experienced a lot in my lifetime in the Netherlands. Uh, but also like very simple um, uh, polarization within professions even. If you look at the medical field, there is so much polarization. I think it's in every layer of the society and profession um, and probably around the world, but I mean, I only experienced it here in the Netherlands. What I've learned though from, from COVID pandemic, because I wasn't able to go back to Afghanistan and I really had to find purpose of life in the Netherlands, is that um, there is so much going wrong in the Netherlands as well. You don't need to go over the border in able to be just for in order to help someone. Um, just a small example, I work in a practice at the moment in a neighborhood uh, in which the majority of the people live with a low socioeconomic status. And it's just horrible to see the, the endeavors that they have got daily, especially women. You wouldn't believe how many women in those neighborhoods still suffer from um, um, uh, violence, gender-based violence, uh, lots of lots of problems, and they're not allowed to talk, they're not allowed to come forward with them, um, many women who are afraid. Um, in my opinion, nationally and internationally, uh, and what, what I've learned from COVID is 
look locally what you can do. Uh, I mean, I'm trying to do something for the women in my practice and maybe a little bit, a few practices around me uh, in the time being that I'm there. But I would hope for those kind of initiatives from young or old people, doesn't matter, but um, to look locally what you can do to bring that change. Because I think it's important for us to realize what is going on in our neighborhood. What is our neighbor doing? Um, that was also a very beautiful thing during COVID. Lots of people who were taking care of their neighbors. I think those were very beautiful things that also gave lots of people motivation, motivation and, and positive uh, thoughts to go through the whole depression of COVID. Um, yeah. yeah, I hope that's an answer. It absolutely is an answer. And you have already proven to be very wise. <laughs> so no worries about that. It's so interesting to hear you both saying uh, the situation is absolutely uh, difficult, challenging, polarization, inequality between many people, also based on ethnicity. But you both talk about opportunities. Uh, what Bea said, what you said, act locally and there are opportunities. How do you see that, Eveline, in this polarized society? In the Netherlands, right? We we're sticking, we're sticking the with this local. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, so just before COVID, I moved to the east of the country, where I'm not from originally, and I'm, I'm learning to integrate. Um, and... Uh, uh, and so you can find endless fraction lines if that's what you're focusing on. Um, and so if you consume uh, media or social media, you, you, you will be steered to find the fraction lines. Um, but if you uh, try to invest your time differently, uh, so I'm living in the heartland of the Farmers' Defence Force, right? I'm surrounded by so-called angry farmers. But I sing with them in the village choir. And so um, uh, they know I'm active on the, you know, what they call the far left radical idiocy scene uh, in politics. And, uh, and I'm uh, insulating my house so it's uh, energy neutral, so it can be an example to the neighborhood. And I'm, you know, we're eating vegan food and we're doing all kinds of weird living communally with multiple families on a farm. But when you spend time together and listen with empathy to their experiences and, and relate to that and then and just share the pressure that you're all under, there's so much more space for joint action than we imagine if we just stick to the polarized debate. Because we, we, we seem to think that debate, where you, where you find the most opposing views, I, I, I used to be a debate leader. I used to earn good money from standing on a stage and getting people to disagree with each other. But it's actually wildly uninspiring. So you have different views. So the point is, where do you go from there? So I'm really excited about the, the really growing movement of burgerberaat in English. My friends, help me. What is it? Civil consultation? Civic councils. In, in many shapes and forms, around difficult topics where you, where you do not just engage the people who are already interested in policy, but, but who, who are all touched by the issue. And then get them to agree and, and sort. So this is, it's moving quietly, but it's coming. It is, it is turning into a really big way. So there are a lot of initiatives, a lot of wonderful progressive farmers who are trying to inspire their neighbors, a lot of progressive thinkers who are trying to bring other people along by living examples and, 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 and sharing that. 
And, and so those are the, the way more interesting stories to follow than the people who, once you, you know, step out into social media, call you all kinds of horrible things. It's, it's quite uninspiring to read what people say about you on Twitter, if you stick yeah. to that. So, so find progressive alliances, build around that, and make them into showcases. So we, we, we tried to found a movement for years here in the Netherlands called the World's Best News, uh, where we found different types of stories to train um, media to, to tell different stories. Um, and it slowly petered out because, because the conviction that what we need, what, what we will pay for, what we are interested to consume is conflict. Yes. And it's so untrue. Yeah. Uh, but we failed in that one, so I'm still trying to find a new opportunity to turn that thing around. Okay. There's it always more stuff to do, right? Yes. Yeah. Everybody says it cannot be done, so you will know that it can be done. It, it, yeah. it can always be done. It can always be done. It has be always done. been a small group of dedicated people who started a change yes. process, and yeah. then others will follow. Yeah. And so pick one and go for it. And if that one doesn't work, then yeah. move to the east of the country and start yes. insulating your house. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much. So it's very, um, very interesting to hear your wise women perspectives on how to deal with this uh, politically and publicly, in the public debate also, divided uh, society, polarized society. Actually, I have to say, when you look at Bay Bay Bay, they have brought back the middle in politics, because now it were not the ultra-right uh, parties who were winning, on the contrary, but there's some sort of middle. Don't we just love it when the right fragments as well? Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> so it's so interesting to hear you say, actually you already have um, very good advices on how to deal with that. First of all, see the positive and see the opportunities and be aware that sometimes indeed it has to get worse, but that is not a reason to lose hope. And what Nilufar is saying, is act locally. Look at what is around you, and that is even strengthened. These two points are strengthened by what Evelina is saying. Evelina is saying, listen to each other, and indeed, an interesting opportunity to gather people to listen to each other is around a certain theme that is of common interest, regardless of gender, ethnicity, political conviction, or whatever a topic that people are interested about. And then you get these uh, burgerberade, uh, civic, uh, civic councils. Um, there's another issue. You know, this, this sounds really hopeful, and, but there is another thing going on. And sometimes it really frightens me. And that is how do we ever get grip on what happens on social media? Because that is the place where people do not listen to each other. That is the place where fake news is made. And soon, we, when we read something, we will not know, was it a person who wrote this? Is this a conviction of somebody based on experiences and vision? Or is it chat GPT? <laughs> so what is the truth? And what will that do in the coming time, social media, where can we as women, with our vision, 
how can we break the influence of social media? How can we get back? How can we pull people away from their bubbles? Also on social media where there are no borders and no social norms. Nilufar, I think you want to say something. I see it in your eyes. Actually, well, actually, I'm really the wrong person for this because I haven't been on social media for, I think, four or five years. Very, Which is uh, a strategy, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it is, absolutely, because I really hate it. Um, I hate the fake, not only news, but just being fake or acting fake. I think that also is a solution. Uh, lots of women, if we're talking about women empowerment, lots of women on social media do tend to um, show their reality of life on social media. I think that would be one of the solutions to show, especially young children, young girls, how the real world really works and not just the fake news that everyone gets and how wonderful their lives are not. Um, I think that's really important to, to also showcase the reality of the world to them and not just all the beauty standards, etc. and bullshit. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that, uh, that sounds very reasonable, but it's also very difficult because specifically young women are very vulnerable on social media. Do you have any thoughts about this, Bea? Well, yes, many thoughts, um, not all relevant ones, and some of them are just a rejection, like you showed also, Nilufar. I was one of the first ones to start on social media in 2010, 2011. I even encouraged my team when I was a director uh, to join the social media. I organized a course for them to uh, deal with Twitter and the others didn't exist at the time. Facebook was just coming up, but Twitter was the big thing then. And then I really enjoyed it to get all that knowledge to, you never had the doubts and the, the uh, strange ways that social media are now trying to manipulate you. I, I strongly believe in the common sense of people though. I think in the end, um, it will work out. We've seen technological challenges before. I was speaking to an ICT person yesterday at a beautiful iftar party, and uh, he told me that uh, in, in the past, we had also, of course, uh, machines coming, uh, the steam engines coming, the cars, the radio, television. These were all big revolutions. This one is far... Uh, wider, bigger uh, revolution, this ICT revolution, because of, of artificial intelligence, the responsibility you need to create the right algorithms and not to start manipulating everybody. But I still believe that people will maybe start getting fed up with this. What yeah. I also feel is that people still love stories. Yeah. They still love experiences of other real people, not just robots. Yeah. And these real stories, I think the younger people, again, the young people, are starting to get back to that, to circular economy, reusing things. That gives me a lot of inspiration and hope. So I think this is a temporary stage. It has to get worse before it gets better. But it will get better because we will come to our senses. Let's have confidence in ourselves. Yes. Let's not despair because then we despair in humanity. Yes. And the only thing we have here is humanity and human yeah. capital. Let's cherish that and it will come. I'm quite convinced yes. of that. Thank you so much for this, uh, Bea. So basically what you are saying, do not despair. 
just show what you stand for as a woman mm -hmm. eh? and believe in the common sense. If you um, connect with people, showing them that you believe in their common sense, it will happen. And finally, um, we will succeed in uh, pulling people out of their social media bubbles and come back to reality and use stories as an attraction, as an incentive to unite people and gather people. That's basically what you were saying too, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah. Okay, yes. So are there any other things when we look at this as our, at our polarized society and what we specifically as women can do to break the bubbles, connect the people, get back to, um, to sitting around the table to listen to stories of or have uh, a civic council? Um, it is having also confidence in people not being too pessimistic, but seeing the positive, uh, the, the many positive things we have in our privileged society. And, and choose wisely uh, in your choices on what you follow and what you, what you read and switch off once it starts in fact. I did find a wonderful husband through a dating website. Not all social media is evil. So, you know, that is a very good one. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, from focusing on the Netherlands, now we are moving out and seeing what's happening in the world. And then when the Netherlands as a country moves out into the world, we now have the feminist foreign policy. Um, first of all, perhaps I may ask you, because I think you know better, is it already a fact? Has this idea of our minister been accepted by the parliament already? Do we already have the implantation of feminist foreign policy? Well, one never really knows with the government we have at the moment. Uh, so I cannot answer your question. Uh, I'm very honest with you here because I have my frustrations there as well. I think we do have a feminist policy, but maybe it's wishful thinking. Uh, I hope not because I think it's about time. And when I was head of the Gender Women in Development desk uh, to 20 years ago, we were already striving towards that. And unfortunately, we still see steps back. When I look at the United States, where Roe versus Wade, uh, the right for women to decide upon their own bodies uh, and the right for them to decide whether they want to have children or not, when that is being challenged, as it is the case in some states, then I th really think we're taking steps back. And we have no right anymore to teach the rest of the world what to do, because we have so many challenges ourselves, as Nilufar, you were already explaining, in, in your own smaller societies. Uh, we have no right to say that, but feminist foreign policy is empowerment of people. And it gives the right to everyone to stand up and uh, demand freedom, because freedom is what we need. Uh, the basic human rights is what we need. And if we can achieve that through feminist foreign policy, uh, 
And it's also very Dutch because it saves us a lot of money to empower women. Because first of all, that's the line we took in, in 2000 where it was the World Bank report uh, showing uh, conclusive uh, economic evidence for this, that you save a lot of money by combating violence against women. It's a very cynical argument, I realize that, because you're doing fantastic work there, empowering women to stand up for their rights, but also states... Uh, they have become more productive and they get better use for their human capital. So that's what we said then. Also the role of women in peace building, in peacemaking. We all remember hopefully Resolution 1325, which was adopted at the time. You remember, Kathleen, when I we do. were both working for that. I still dream about 1325. Yeah, <laughs> but it was also the time of high ideals, you know, after the fall of the Iron Curtain and the so-called disappearance of ideologies, the end of history, Fukuyama. We were all wrong there, but how could we not have been uh, wrong? I mean, it was a logical way of thinking, and you're always sort of uh, decide, you decide the future upon the basis of the knowledge there and then. Yes. We couldn't have known better. It's yeah. no use to flog yourself and say, we should have, we should have. No, no as my mother used to say, as is verbrande turf. Yeah. Uh, as, as is as if, if, if I only, if I only. It doesn't matter, it no. doesn't help. Yes. It takes time, effort, don't yes. waste your time. Yeah. So that is what I would like to say on this. So, like you're saying, in our own country, there is a lot that we still have to do if we really want a feminist-based society, yeah, when the values of women are, play a much more central role in the way we relate to each other. There are so many disequalities between men and women. So in our own country, we are not the best of the world, to start with, so um, and now we uh, say that the, the, uh, the feminist foreign policy should make the difference abroad that we are not always capable of doing inside our own country. But that doesn't matter, because I think that perhaps what we learn abroad can be very enriching for our own challenges and the, um, what we have to face on a daily basis. So, um, one thing... No, let me first ask you all. So, what do you expect? I hardly dare to ask you, Nilofar, a feminist foreign policy. What difference will that make for women and girls in Afghanistan? I... yeah. Yeah, I actually don't even have an answer for that because it's devastating and I don't think that there is a realistic answer to that, especially not for the upcoming years as I see it. I do completely agree with you, uh, by the way. Um, but yeah, Afghanistan is, I think, completely different <laughs> at the moment to the rest of the world and you can compare it to the rest of the world. Um, there is, I mean, women are not seen as human beings, so you can't give someone their rights if you don't see them as human. Um, that is the main challenge at the moment in Afghanistan, to put them back as humans on the map and then look further. Short answer. Yeah, it is. I, I'm, I'm related to the Asian University for Women in Bangladesh, where 
young women from the most underprivileged part of 16 uh, Asian countries, although Middle East countries, um, are stimulated to develop their leadership skills. And the majority of our students are from Afghanistan. And I'm still in touch with them, of course, my former students, and it was really, and it is devastating what I hear from them. So, yeah, I fully, um, we will not go further into this, but this is really what you think, what can a feminist foreign policy make for a difference for these educated young women and all those who will never get a chance for education in the coming years. Eveline, please. It, it will help if we finally start putting money where our mouth is. Um, so having a policy and then funding it, um, what might be nice. Um, so we can still push for that, right? Once you have a policy, you can push for the space that that policy should be providing. Um, and so I'm not a patient crafter of policy. I'm, a, I'm more of a dragon that blows yeah. stuff off. But, but other people do that well and have the patience to sit through endless sessions in Parliament like you have done, um, and crafting and co-crafting and, and making that into a, a functional policy space that others can then use. And, and so currently uh, I'm working for the, an organisation called The Hunger Project, um, where, for example, uh, I think we can learn from the quota that we have for, for women's participation in, um, in local councils, in municipal councils. Now, the size and scale of India is somewhat different from ours. I, I looked it up, right? We have um, 250,000 municipal councils in India. We have 345 in the Netherlands. Um, but uh, the Hunger Project trains 1.3 million elected representative women um, to take the position that they are elected into seriously and, and, and help them to fill that space, um, because they have a quota, um, but then they're still ignored for meetings, they're not invited, or they're just invited to show up and sign, um, and, and not asked to participate, not taken seriously, and have very limited access to what they could be using to fill their role. So, so providing the training to fill that policy space um, is, a, is a crucial opportunity. Now, here in the Netherlands, we don't yet have quota for women in politics. Uh, we are growing from 31% to 35% of women in municipal seats. I think we should start learning from India's national policy, maybe not their political practices at the moment, but, um, but the quota, I think, uh, are going to be instrumental in getting to equal participation. Now, we have made some advances through this wonderful campaign of Vote for Women. I think in our last elections, 459 women who were considered in, uh, ineligible, were lower on the list, were voted up. Um, uh, so we're making some progress, but I, I would advocate for quota. Now, that's not a feminist foreign policy. That's learning from what foreigners are doing well. So I'll advocate for that. That's absolutely uh, very interesting. And eh? when we say don't don't look too much at what you yourself do wrong, but learn from what other countries do, and we can learn a lot. Eh? Like Rwanda, also, fifty percent of parliament is women. Uh, so, so, but we did, you know, we did make some progress. Out of seven municipalities where women are in the majority in municipal council, we now have twenty-four yeah, out of three hundred forty-five. It is growing. Yeah. 
it, but there's it some is room growing. Left. Yeah, but then I would also say it's not only the number, then they should really. And it's not only women, you know. There are also men who can practice a feminist mm-hmm. policy. There's no and way you can change uh, exactly. a community if you do not include boys and men. Exactly. in that change agenda because it's not women's re- like it's not just the responsibility yeah. of youth to clean up the shit that we're leaving behind um, <laughs> um, uh, it's also w- crucial to to include in your training pro- uh, programs yes. the local officials yes. uh, and boys and men yeah yes of course so that is a very interesting example of something to really focus on when you re- when you want to make a difference through feminist foreign policy. Do you have other examples from your experience that you say, if we really take this vision, the female perspective, like what we were saying in the beginning, eh, the biblical story we started with, the women had a different approach, a different perspective. Do you have experiences in your own um, um, history, what you have seen, perhaps in Guatemala, that you say, you know, this is really something where that different way of looking at reality made a huge change. Uh, Maybe not just Guatemala, but uh, women uh, entrepreneurship, I found very promising because uh, they always said jokingly when these banks in 2008 went bankrupt, Uh, if only women had been in charge of these banks, uh, it would have been better. I don't know exactly, but I do know that women are more risk-averse than men. Uh, and this is a very generalization, uh, bad generalization. I don't want to insult uh, the the men in the room. Uh, but it's it's definitely true that women traditionally were responsible for the families, had to make do with the means they had, were very creative in that. So if you uh, let women run businesses, you see very surprising outcomes, also in developing countries. If you give young women, like we saw in the film, uh, this uh, trust, this confidence, the money, uh, the training, uh, empower them to do this business uh, to set up their companies, you get very surprising results. And they also inspire other young women to do the same. And older women should also, as you said, you should maybe put uh, more positive pictures on on the social media of what women can do. That could be very inspiring. We could turn the attitude around and looking for inspiration, looking for the real stories of entrepreneurs, of women entrepreneurs, what is your secret of success, what are the trips, the, the, the tricks of the trade, and that could be inspiring, and yeah. that could enhance a positive yeah. movement, not yeah. a negative one. Very interesting idea to create a platform where the strength of women uh, can be shared broadly to bring back this positive sense of we can do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Nilufar. Do you have anything to add to that? Um, Well, not a lot. Um, I think talking about Afghanistan before the Taliban overtake, um, I definitely recognize what you're saying. Women were, of course, very much empowered and there were lots of entrepreneurs uh, who were also doing businesses abroad, not just in Afghanistan and who were traveling around the world. Um, 
in my own experience, I mean, I was just training students at universities and it wasn't just a female perspective when I went there, but it was also a foreign perspective because I, well, for them, I was a foreigner um, as I am here. But um, so that was on its own actually also inspiring for the female students, for the female doctors to see, well, back then a young doctor coming back on her own and just daring to be there inside a society of full men, uh, politicians, um, uh, every sector was just men, men, men everywhere. And I was there on my own, uh, standing for my project and, and doing our, our, well, not my project, Kai Han's project, but doing our, our, uh, our project and our work and building trust. I think that was one of the most beautiful experiences that I had, but also inspiring the students, not just the female, but also the male students, to be different, yes. to act different, not have this traditional way of thinking of life and, and work, but yeah. a little bit maybe changing and seeing whether it's for the better. Yeah. They are to be different. Yes. Yeah. And I would counter-argue Bea's point that women are more risk-averse or wiser even. Um, but I do think you get to better decisions if you have a diverse perspective. Um, and so uh, by providing a space where a lot of different perspectives are heard and taken seriously before a decision is taken, I think uh, that would be my ideal feminist agenda. So not so much because women lead better uh, or women, we have wonderful examples of women who ran away with the microfinance money, and it, it, yeah. shit happens everywhere. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. going back again and again to having a safe space to negotiate joint uh, decision making mm -hmm. um, takes a lot of courage from women in societies where where you're not traditionally even recognized as a valuable voice. So, so then, of course, you need role models. You need to build those into glorified examples of uh, the wonderful things that women do. But in the end, it comes down to joint, uh, diverse uh, dialogues. I just add, yes. because actually I'm against the word feminist foreign policy. I think it should, because we've also included LGBTIQ yes. and uh, all the other minorities that enrich us. I yeah. think we should call it diverse and inclusive foreign policy. Exactly. That does much more justice. Yeah. So let's start a plea. I already started in the ministry uh -huh. to change the name. Uh, at our ambassador's conference, I made this remark. I said feminist foreign policy, although we're 50% of the population, biologically, uh, or maybe a little bit less, or maybe a bit more, uh, we should include everybody. We should include all the richness of the human beings, of yeah. human capital, yeah. and maybe call it change agent foreign policy, yeah, 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 that yeah. you identify people who want to change society for the better, yeah. and not put it to sex or yeah. gender. I'm so tired of these well, names. It's, it's, it's again a polarization. Yes, you, it you is. You redivide into... Yes. No, I, I'm in, in favor of a new name. So are you. Yeah. So are you. Good. We already yeah. have three, four. Okay, okay. okay. Let's go. <laughs> the, 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 this, this is already very important. We will write it down and we will start the campaign. But... There's still one issue that triggers me personally so much, and I would also like to pick your brains on that issue. And, you know, I 
um, I have seen it in the different places where I have been living around the globe, in Chile, in Brazil, more recently in Hong Kong. And whether you talk about feminist foreign policy or whether you say we want a change-maker foreign policy, how what you will do is regarded in different settings is, ha, huh, there they are with their Western ideas. There they come with their idea that they are the norm. They know how my world should look like. What they find important, I have to find important. When I was in Chile many years ago, you know, everybody knew how to write a project to please them. And then you could do with the money whatever you want. But, you know, this idea, they always, in the end, come to tell me what I should do. That sense of uh, superiority that is so often at the basis of everything that is done. So how do you deal with that? And there are tricky moments. For instance, when on the most basic human rights norms, you see something happening in a country and you think, this is not possible. Is this happening today in, in our world? But then it is an old cultural conviction. So how do you deal with that? You understand my question? Yeah. So, yeah, please. I can again answer uh, for Afghanistan. Um, Paul and I and another group of people have been uh, doing major, major uh, research actually about um, the Netherlands in Afghanistan. And one of the very, very big points was um, how to deal with people there and whether we were informed before we went there. Well, we weren't. And that is one of the the reasons why um, you come there as a superior kind of um, group and want to do something that it isn't even possible. Yeah. I think, yeah, you need to, to keep that in mind, absolutely, because it's, it's, um, it's not building trust. I think it comes back to trust because they will not trust you and your methods if they don't understand where it comes from. And I've also seen the falsification of, of documents and, and reports and everything. And I mean, it, it's not good for anyone and not for the, for the people there, but also not for your sponsors. Um, so I think you need to be in dialogue with the people you want to help. You need to be in dialogue beforehand, during and after. I think one of the biggest problems with developmental aid in the Netherlands is we're not in dialogue with people when we are active. There is an evaluation of projects and, and, and money which is sent to developing countries uh, at that moment. There is evaluation afterwards. After 20 years of Afghanistan, we're seeing what went wrong. There was an evaluation. Well, probably there was, but not enough to recognize what went wrong and to change at that moment. I think it's very much important to be in contact with locals, evaluate, have dialogues, and then act as they need, so demand-driven and not the other way around. Um, and then I think they can trust you and then you can build something sustainable, making them independent of you because that is what you want. Because you want to leave and you will leave as we did. 
Yeah. Thank you very much. And that is also like a very concrete advice, not only to the ministry, but also to coordinate. Be aware of this. Uh, talk with the people, listen to people. Because, um, for instance, we were talking, I was talking with somebody who um, is aware of a really uh, uh, frightening practice, practice still going on somewhere in the world where uh, men are allowed to hunt women. You know, it's part of the tradition and they do it. So where do you, st how do you start the discussion like you were saying, Nilufar, you have to sit with the people and talk. And of course they see you as superior because you have the money and we have to face that truth that gives inequality and so you have to work on building the trust. First on that sense that people are aware we are equal in spite of the fact that I have the money. But when you encounter cultural practices that are so far away from what your organization, like Cordate, wants to do, how do you start a discussion like that? You, you have experience with that, Eveline, in, um, with the Hunger Project? Yeah, every day, oh, of course. Uh, but if you... So we're having two different discussions, right? So yes. decolonizing the funding structure that we have in place that makes... Uh, us think that what we need to do is train local organizations to become micro INGOs. Um, so it's not just shift the power, it's actually shit the power because then they yeah. get all the compliance and the, and the wonderful stuff that we've invented to make sure that they can be trusted, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. um, so um, I think what we need to come up with and we need to come up with this really soon is an understanding of where we still add value as international aid organizations um, and to make sure that in all our programming there is space to develop the, the intervention locally. Not in the three weeks that you have after you've negotiated your consortium and you've met all the threshold criteria um, that you then have left to develop a program that you're stuck with for seven years, uh, if you're lucky, probably for three. Um, we're still making fundamental mistakes in the way we fund our international work and we're stuck with it and we need to unstuck that. So that's one of the things I'm aiming to work on this year. Um, uh, and I think there's space for that, to do that together with the ministry. Um, so because there's a new funding structure coming up and let's just make sure it works as well as it can for all of us. Now, detrimental local cultural practices... <laughs> Endless examples. Um, yeah. But you can only change a cultural practice if the change comes from within. Yeah. And so therefore, for example, in a community in Malawi where we work, it's a traditional practice. If a husband dies of AIDS, then uh, one of, uh, a man dies of AIDS, one of his relatives needs to sleep with the widow within 24 hours to, uh, to make sure she's freed of his spirit. Now, we can go as foreigners or, or my well-educated Malawian colleagues with their university training and their city background and their car can go there and tell people that that is a silly idea. That doesn't change anything. And they nod and continue their practice. However, if you sp spend time together and, and, and talk it through and try to um, uh, invite a community to come up with a different ritual that will have the same result, uh, and in the end it came down to... Uh, the, the widow needed to sweat, and so there needed to be sex. 
And so uh, if two relatives of the widow slept on her sleeping mat and had sex and then they had breakfast the next morning and you added chili, um, then everybody was sweating. <laughs> then we covered all the grounds yeah. and nobody got contaminated because there was a couple that was already sleeping yeah. together. Um, and so you can stop a spread mm -hmm. yes. by still sticking within the norms and beliefs of that community. Yes. Yes. Nobody, not the wildest cultural anthropologist with 20 years of experience would have invented that new ritual, but the community does. Yeah. Um, but it takes time. So um, there are always ways to go about it. And rituals have always changed over time. It's never a static. But you need to spend time to find the local solution. And there you use an essential word where we are not very good. You need time. We right. don't have time. Yes, we, we do. We just, want, we just spend we it unwisely. No, I'm not saying that we, we no. don't have time. We don't want to take time. We want results immediately. We are so linear. Other cultures are much more circular. Or they accept that you need to go two steps forward and then one step back. It was called one day the Echte Nacht Procession. Catholics amongst you will remember that, that you need to go two steps ahead, one step back, and eventually you will reach your goal. But what we always do is we measure the step backwards, and then we get yeah. very frustrated. But we forget that we've taken two steps ahead, only one step back, not two. So we're still advancing, but more slowly than we think. And that is what we are not accepted. Uh, we cannot accept that in the West. And this linear way of thinking, always progress, always economic growth, everything should always be better, better, better. Other societies, even within Europe, Eastern Europe, are better at that. I saw that in Bulgaria. And this is very challenging. And on these traditional practices, which we reject. If you go and sit with people, and I work with some religious organizations, Mensa um, uh, Metamissi, Tier Fund, Search for Common Ground, they have projects in seven countries in the south. And they do projects in that way, that you sit with community, you have a conversation, not even a dialogue, conversation, because a dialogue implies a power structure. Conversation is amongst equals, and you listen to them, and you ask them for solution, and then I go back to the point I made before, common sense of human beings. Why don't we trust that? Afghan women are the strongest ones I know, apart from the Bangladeshi, because I was ambassador to Bangladesh. Yes. I have huge admiration for Bangladeshi, yes. because they are the real survivors. We oh, are not, not in the West, not in the Netherlands. There you have survivors. In Afghanistan as well. And then if you sit with them and you come to the, the bottom line, you peel off all the linguistic... Uh, niceties and, and traps, and you come back to the basic human values of freedom, dignity, and hope, and now we go back to the main theme, a resurrection will occur, because people will suddenly show, or slowly show, that they are up to the job. We should give them confidence, and that's why I find this whole localization, the power, whatever, uh, shit, the power, I like that. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this, this, this shift, or whatever it is, uh, give voice to people who have to do the job. That's what we, that's need. What we need. And we have to entrust them with the money, and we have to pay them well, because if you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. This is a terrible way of saying it, but it always works. You should give people the dignity of doing the job and the confidence. Only then you will get results. And we have made so many mistakes in the past. 
with the best of intentions, that is for sure, but sometimes not the results we wanted. So maybe we can do better. I'm hopeful. Thank you so much. Um, we, we are moving towards the end of this, uh, this afternoon, but uh, I cannot let you go before asking you, so what would be your final advice as a wise woman, um, specifically for Gord Cordate, what could Cordate do from your wise women's perspective to be successful in what Corday tries to do, and that is to work to a more just and more equal world for all of us. So what could be your advice? One word, or well, one sentence, not more than that. Maybe listen um, and include uh, everybody who heads for the right that's also my answer to patience, because she's waiting for an answer, right? Yeah. So patience, if you hear me, here comes the answer. We have to listen to you. We have to not tell you what to do. You have to come up with the solutions, how to include change agents, people who want to help you on the way to equity, equality, and justice. And that could be men, that could be LGBTIQ, that could be handicapped, maybe even the best ones to help you is people who feel that they have been ignored and now want to fight for justice together with you. So find them and start fighting. Thank you. Thank you so much. Niloufar. I don't have a lot more to say after Bea, but um, what I'd like to say is look closely, even maybe within the organizations themselves, because there, there could also be not in particular coordinate, but lots of organizations could make changes for the benefit of the organization and their work. Um, because, which is very much important, is we shouldn't be talking about people, but with those people, so also incorporate those people which you want to help in your organization. So whether it's a minority group or women, have women in your organization to stand up for women and for minorities, uh, other minorities the same. Thank you. Thank you so much, Eveline. It's not wise to give advice. So I'd ask you to check with your neighbor and give each other advice on what Cordate should do next. You know much better than I do. So uh, could, yes. could they take two minutes and give each other advice and then yes. report out on the surprising advice that they got from their neighbor? Exactly. If it was surprising? I think it's a great idea. You get uh, two minutes. Please, find your neighbor. <laughs> okay, your two minutes are about gone now. So, eh, finally I can see you all. So, who thinks she or he or it, I have to say, has a very interesting insight gotten from... Uh, uh, her neighbor, sorry, uh, I have to be uh, correct. So who wants to say something? Who has heard something that you say, this I want to share? Yes, please, can you come forward? So who are you? Hi, I'm Anne. Hi. Hi. I think uh, most people here know me. <laughs> um, I have to say, I was listening, and, and Sandra and I were also talking about it, who's over there, she's my amazing colleague. Um, and um, I have to say, I got a tiny bit sad. 
um, because there's a lot of referral to young people in the future and how, you, how there's a lot of responsibility put on young people. I don't really think that's fair. Um, I'm sorry, we are in a big shit show right now with the world that was created by other generations. So it feels a little bit easy to shove it away. Um, also, reflecting on what was said on feminist foreign policy, it's going to be there. We have to deal with it. It's going to be there. How do we deal with it? And in my humble opinion, feminist foreign policy is not just about women. Feminist foreign policy is about making sure we have the equality between women and men and everyone else who feels in that spectrum. I feel that was missed a little bit, so we were talking about that. And also Sandra and I feel that as Cordate, we try to listen as much as possible. And we also try to reflect and be critical to each other as much as possible. So I think, um, am I reflecting well, Sandra? Yeah? <laughs> we also always check our sources. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's... Yeah. Thank you so much. Give her a big hand. Because what Anna is saying is something indeed I have heard more often. You're always looking at the young people to solve the problems that you have created. So that is also something uh, to absolutely be aware about. Take the responsibility also for what you have done. Uh, one more person who has a very interesting insight wants to share with us. Yeah. What's your name? My name is Wien Sylvie-Smit. I'm HR at Cordaked. Okay. Yeah. So what I, we were also reflecting more on what happened on the table. So it was good. Thank you for asking us to also think on what we were discussing. And for me personally, I was touched by, I think you said that to uh, really trust the persons that you work with. And also because, I, and you know, you have the money and you have the power and then you have to give the trust. Because if you keep that part with yourself, it won't work. Yes. You, it will still be your conditions and it will still be your terms on how you work together. Yes. So that was the one I really, that, that really touched me. Yes. Yeah. That is really like a changed way of looking at how you work and how you exactly. want to achieve yeah. your goals. So look at, uh, have a look at how you give trust, how you trust people yeah. and work with that. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for coming forward. <clears throat> so now we are really coming to a closure. Uh, of this uh, very interesting afternoon and uh, first of all I want to thank the three wise women who um, were brave enough to share their thoughts and insights and challenges. Please give them a big hand. And then there are so many takeaways of this afternoon but I, and I would just shortly try to structure it's a little bit. So I have seen there are basically two things we have been talking about. That is the structure of uh, the ministry, but also the policy of organizations like Cord Aid. So what can you do to achieve your goals better? Um, it's, it starts with uh, having a critical look at yourself. Uh, as a country, but also as an organization, how do I deal with migrants? How do I use the, the knowledge of migrants within my organization? How do I uh, use the different perspectives of the change makers? So what is my own practice when it comes to diversity, equality, and inclusion? And then secondly, be aware 
of the power relations. The, when it comes to uh, financing, um, he, uh, shit power, he, be aware of the power uh, relations uh, and the structures that you have in your funding. And then these three women, but also the two women who added to what has been said, have given us some perspectives that can really make a difference in the way we look at the work we are doing and how we look at the world and how we see that we can achieve what we want to achieve, a more just and uh, equal world. And then, first of all, uh, take a, have a positive outlook. Do not let yourself get um, drowned into all the problems and the, the unsolvable issues. See what you have, count your blessings, and try to be positive. Secondly, uh, think locally. Have a look at what happens around you. Perhaps you do not have to change the whole world in your own, even if you're coordinate, but start doing uh, in your own environment, with your own personal behavior, how you can make this world a better place. And then, when it comes to all that you do, it is about, indeed, uh, dignity. The dignity of the people. That is basically what we all here are working at. But dignity cannot come without confidence, without common sense, confidence to let others take the lead. Eh? So put yourself on the back, let others take the lead, that give that confidence, have common sense, sit down, and take time to really listen to what people really want. Give them that respect, give them that time, and then people will rise. Thank you.